Welcome to Knickknack News. I'm Anthony. And I'm Alex. And my first story today is food news. This is, of course, from Delish.com. And the headline is, Arby's has a mint chocolate milkshake that's topped with pieces of Andy's chocolate mints. Hmm. I feel like they're trying to compete with something here. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> I Yes, this story is very short. But I'll just go over it really quickly. They have this mint chocolate milkshake. Um, apparently, they've had this before. They've brought it back. I don't know if it's a yearly thing. It made it seem like it's not a yearly thing. It's just oh. like a. they sometimes have this shake on their menu. But they brought okay. it back. It is, like I said, a mint chocolate shake. And um, it has whipped cream and chocolate syrup on top and bits of Andy's mints. And some people are excited I think they're trying to compete with a shamrock shake. Yeah, which is a losing battle. You just you have this to. This shamrock shake is so good. You're gonna have to do something really special to beat that thing. I, uh. I this okay. If you if you like the shamrock shake, but you really want more chocolate in it, I guess maybe this shake might be for you because it's like a it's actually yeah. a mint chocolate shake instead of a minty vanilla shake. But McDonald's has like the Oreo shamrock shake as well. If That's you want true. a chocolatey version of it. I will say, though, that that doesn't have a ton of the Oreo in it. It's kind of just oh, like okay. a little bit yeah, I've since had I've had before, that. So. It's really good. I actually, both times I've had the Shamrock Shake, I got that one. And mm-hmm. I really, really liked it because I love Oreo. Right. But it's not like a ton of chocolate. Just like a little, it's almost like a sprinkling of it in there. Just you get like a little bit of that that Oreo mixed in. It's just like, mm. gotcha. But if mm. you, this this sounds like it's just like a, all chocolate. I like might have to cream. order one of these for uh for testing for, purposes. For research for purposes. For research. That's, the, that's a much better word. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly, I don't really like chocolate shakes. So mm. I probably won't get one. But if you get one, let me know All right. how it is. Yeah. Because I am curious. Yeah, and you know how I feel about the shamrock shakes. So, yes. Well, you know I'm a I'm an extremely biased judge. <laughs> I would be too if I was trying. I'd be doubly biased. I'd be like, I don't even like chocolate shakes in the first place. Why am I trying this? And B, I already think the shamrock shake is <laughs> that's not a that's not a good way to go in. And yeah, that's well. not impartial at all. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So that's my food update. All right, my first story is animal news. <laughs> This is from the New York Times. Meet the sea slugs that chop off their heads and grow new bodies. Oh, my God. <laughs> Meet that. They're what? fine. They're good. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're doing great. Um, so um, this is a, a PhD candidate at Nara Women's University in Japan named uh, Sayaka uh, Mito. Uh, was perusing her lab's collection of sea slugs when she stumbled upon a gruesome sight. One of the sea slugs, an Elysia... Uh, Marginata had somehow been decapitated. <laughs> even more, even more bizarrely, the severed head of the creature was moving around the tank, eating algae as if there was nothing unusual about being a bodiless slug. So just the head was just like scooting around. And there's actually video in the article of one of these things, like Ooh. right after it was decapitated, like it decapitated. How? The head has enough surface on it to move it around, around on its own. Yeah, it's wild. Oh. Um, 
She also saw signs that the slug, uh, the sea slug's wound was self-inflicted. It was as if the sea slug had dissolved the tissue around its neck and ripped its own head off, <laughs> which it turns out is what it did. <laughs> sort Why? of like how, sort of like how lizards have that like spot on their tails where they can just like snap it oh, off. Oh yeah. They have this but on their neck so they can take their entire head off. Um so you asked why, and they do speculate why, uh, okay. though they don't know for sure yet. Um, but uh, that comes up in a second. Um, so for some self-amputation, which is also known as uh, autotomy, not autonomy, autotomy, uh, isn't uncommon in the animal <laughs> kingdom. Having the ability to jettison a body part, which is <laughs> my, the best way to say that, I think. <laughs> jettison a body uh, Such as a tail, helps many animals avoid predation. However, no animal had ever been observed ditching its entire body. <laughs> yeah, that just this is that kind of seems a first. not a good thing. Okay. It seems like it wouldn't be good, but um, yeah, she said that she had expected this slug uh, to die quickly without a heart and other important organs. But it not only continued to live, it also regenerated the entirety of its body within three weeks. Its entire uh, body, uh, organs and all, in three weeks. That's insane. It's it is, and these things aren't. I mean, I, I guess maybe I don't think they're tiny. Like I think they're like a few inches long at least. But um, huh. they didn't actually say. I'm realizing, and maybe those photos were zoomed in. Anyway, uh, <laughs> this uh, this prompted Mito and her colleagues to conduct a series of experiments aimed at figuring out how and why some sea slugs guillotine themselves. <laughs> the wording in this is excellent. This is. <laughs> Um, this is so bizarre. Uh, but yeah, the results of their experiments, published Monday in Current Biology, provide evidence that Elysia marginata and a closely related species, Elysia atroviridis, purpose, purposefully decapitate themselves in order to facilitate the growth of a new body. Um, although more research is needed, the researchers suspect that these sea slugs ditch their bodies when they become infected with internal parasites. So if the old body becomes infected with parasites, they're just like, bye, bye body, and they just start a new one. They just drop that one. Okay, that seems like a really It seems extreme, possibly. Skill to have? But yeah. You could just, I don't like, like this uh, body. This body's not working so well anymore. Just pop your head off and grow a new one. Yeah. Easy as that. Um. So their experiments involved monitoring several groups of these slugs over the course of their lives. Not all the sea slugs they monitored decapitated themselves, <laughs> but many did. And one even did it twice. <laughs> so Whoa. They said that bodies regenerated from the heads of both species, but the headless bodies remained headless in all cases. Um, and But the, the dumped bodies reacted to stimuli for as long as months afterwards before they decomposed, which is also very strange because they didn't have a brain. Right. Which I I would imagine that's in the head of the slug, but I also don't know. It could be, um, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the like reflexes. Yeah. Like physical. What's the word I'm looking for? Like unintentional movements. uh, Yeah. I know what you're. Involuntary. We can, yes, yes. Invol- involuntary movements. Yeah. I don't know. Where it's like just built into the nervous system of the body of the slug anyway. Yeah. I don't know enough about the central, the nervous system of slugs, much less myself. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, Same. But yeah, they said that the they only observed the parasites 
in the one species that Atroviridis and not the other one, but they both decapitated themselves, so they're not 100% sure that's the cause. So, hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, it seems like a reasonable explanation, but yeah. then, like, why are the other ones just... Maybe every once in a while they're just like, this body, were they I'm tired near, of it. Maybe Were they nearby, got, the other ones that had decapitated themselves? Oh, it's like peer pressure. Yeah. They, <laughs> I wasn't thinking. I was thinking peer pressure. I was like, maybe they, they, they were like, oh, that slug must have parasites. I could get parasites. I could have parasites. Hmm. Or I yeah, could have parasites. True. I'm going to decapitate myself. They didn't mention myself. whether they were like sequestered from each other or not. Yeah, if they didn't exactly look at that, then we won't ever know. Yeah. <laughs> How can they know if okay, they have to do a test? They have to do <laughs> a test, to do a where, test like, where they can't see each other. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just for fun. Maybe they get like a really minor injury or something, and they're just that's just their reaction to that is to just start fresh. I mean, three weeks isn't that long to just be. Yeah, ahead. I guess that's true. This seems like a novel finding, though. Like, don't you think oh, yeah. you would have known? Like that they did this before. Right, especially now. The given like it sounded like they had a laboratory full of sea slugs. It's like yeah. you've never once like noticed that one of them decapitated themselves. Maybe they're just not paying that close attention. I guess. Yeah, so, okay, my next story is science news. This is from sciencealert.com. And the headline is Faster Than Light Travel is possible within Einstein's physics astrophysicists show. Oh, wow, that was a yeah. that was a loaded loaded headline. I know. Um this this story is so complicated and full of terms that I don't even fully understand myself, but I'm going to try to talk about it's it. It's never stopped us before. Yeah. Right, right. So uh, as some background, many scientists have tried to solve the problem of sending something across space at faster than light speed. There are some problems with this notion, however. Within conventional physics, in accordance with Albert Einstein's theories of relativity, there is no real way to reach or exceed the speed of light like as a physical object, mm-hmm. um, which is something we'd need to do if we wanted to go on like a really large journey in space that's some, somewhere that's like light years away. It right. would take us like thousands of years to get there, so it's not really practical. Yeah. Um, this has not stopped physicists from trying to break the universal speed limit, though. <laughs> in a new study by some physicists from Germany, we may, and my personal notice, that's a big may, have a viable <laughs> solution to the dilemma of traveling really, really far distances in space. While pushing matter past the speed of light can't happen, Space-time itself apparently does not have this limitation. So we're going to manipulate space and time? Yeah. Oh, okay. Seems <laughs> we're easy. just going to manipulate space-time. Yeah, sure. So basically the idea here is that we could bend space-time in order to essentially achieve faster-than-light travel without breaking Einstein's laws of physics. Okay. Okay. So... Okay, and if you think about it, like, have you ever seen the Wrinkle in Time movie? No. Okay, never mind. Sorry. Because <laughs> they actually, like, <laughs> this kind of theory, I think, has been around as, like, a concept for a while. And actually, that that story, I think, kind of, like, I don't know, it's been years since I saw it. But they, they actually have a sort of an explanation of this in that. And I mm-hmm. kind of remembered it when I was reading this. I think it's the same thing. I don't know. It's been, like, ten years since I saw that movie. So but, is the idea kind of, like, the speed of light is, is like, however many meters per second. I don't remember how long, how much that is, but it's like 9.98 9. 
something ten cents yeah, of something. Anyway. Yeah. And like the idea is that you manipulate what a second is essentially and then kind that of, changes yeah. what that actual speed is. Yes. Okay. Or or you could also think of it like manipulating space. The distance. The distance. You're like, manipulating one or both or yeah, one of the yeah. like you like going from here to like over there. Uh-huh. If you brought over there to closer to you, then you could get over there without going as far. Sure. But you actually over there now. <laughs> That's like what this is. Okay. But Great. How? I'm glad we cleared that up. But how? I'll get to how. Oh, okay. They so, do actually have a how. Okay, yeah. That, that's like the study was. It's like, I could have told you the that. Thing that was, right. The thing that was published was like a actual way that we maybe could do it. Okay. So. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, where was I in this? So, to bend a small bubble of space for transport purposes, we'd uh-huh. need to solve relativity's equations to create a density of energy that's lower than the emptiness of space. Don't think too hard about that. I... But you have to make, like, a negative density uh-huh. space. Okay. Um, okay, so that kind of energy is known to happen on a quant... Wait, no. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, it's like known to happen on a quantum scale, which is like a really, really, really small scale. But like to do it in like a larger scale that we would need, um, like in the past that has just been like very speculative and like what they called in this article, exotic physics. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Okay. So live science. (laughs) In this new work, these physicists propose a way that we might be able to do this thanks to what they call a new class of hyperfast solitons, which is a kind of wave that maintains its shape and energy while moving at a constant velocity, which can be faster than light. And then they skip over all the math and basically say that given enough energy, configurations of these solitons could function as a warp bubble or a kind of like warp drive capable of faster than light motion. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to make like a big enough one to encompass an object. And uh-huh. then if you could do that, then that object could travel faster than light because it's inside of a space that's traveling faster than light. All right. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to explain this very, in a second. Yeah, no, at a very basic level, that makes sense. It's just also. Yeah, I'm not going uh, into any of the math. Yeah, <laughs> no, why. that's fair. But this was funny, though, because like at the end, they're like, okay, the amount of energy that would be needed to do this is like not really practical. This is a quote from one of the physicists. The energy required for this drive, traveling at light speed, encompassing a spacecraft of 100 meters in radius, is on the order of hundreds of times the mass of the planet Jupiter. (laughs) So like this crazy high amount of energy Mm. that's like there's no way we could make that much energy to make this happen. Right. But like (laughs) apparently it's theoretically technically possible to do it. Yeah, that so, doesn't give me that doesn't give me like a lot of hope for it happening anytime <laughs> soon, though. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know unless somebody like comes up with some like, you know, state of the art energy source that just gives us like energy, infinite, infinite, infinite energy. energy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and um, fun fact: uh, physicist Eric Lentz, who's I think the head author of this study will be presenting the work live on youtube on march 19th so oh, okay. if you want to like learn more about it have your brain gonna absolutely be a explode youtube live event march 19th with one of the physicists so, all right yeah tune in all right my next story is space news 
This is from vice.com. Scientists discover chunk of protoplanet older than Earth in the Sahara Desert. What is protoplanet? I will explain okay. what protoplanet is. Um, uh, in the spring of 2020, an amazing relic was discovered in a remote region of the Sahara Desert, an ultra-rare chunk of an embryonic planet that existed before Earth was born. Uh, the, the relic is known as Ergcheck002, <laughs> or EC002. Um, there's a reason for that I will get to. Uh, but the, the meteorite was uh, forged within the crust of an ancient protoplanet, which is a small celestial body that serves as a building block for other planets. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of just like a okay. group of matter that ends up turning into other planets. Hmm. Like other planets can, like kind of spin out of it or... I Interesting. Know, I don't know exact, the exact science of it. But uh, uh, the volcanic space rock is the oldest known lava that has ever fallen to Earth, according to a study published Monday in Proceedings of the National Academy of Scientists. Sciences, not scientists. Not scientists. Um, <laughs> named after its landing site within Algeria's Ergchek Dune Sea. So the area is called Ergchek. It's, it just seemed like such oh, a weird okay. name. It's like, did you just name that to sound like sci-fi? Um, <laughs> but that's what it was named that's for. That's actually what it's... Okay. Yeah. It, it consists of several meteorites that collectively weigh about 70 pounds. Uh, the stones, which contain stunning crystals, were found Ooh. in May 2020. And they said stunning crystals, but they didn't have any pictures of them. Oh. I was like, no. They just had a picture of the outside of it, which just looks like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've seen rocks. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, analysis of magnesium and aluminum isotopes in the rock revealed that it dates back about 4.566 billion years, making wow, okay. it the oldest known piece of an igneous crust ever found. Uh, and for comparison, the next oldest igneous meteorite, called NWA-11119, <laughs> is about 1.24 billion years younger than ec uh, zero zero two, while Earth itself began to emerge several million years after the formation of both of these rocks. Uh, multiple teams are working to confirm the age of EC zero zero two with other isotropic, uh, is- sorry, isotopic studies. It's got a different meaning. Uh, researchers <laughs> also want to study the crystals inside the rock, which are older than the surrounding volcanic material. Um, and the article oh. also kind of goes into detail more about like how protoplanets work. Which I didn't fully understand, so I didn't include it. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Like the idea of oh. a chunk of rock on Earth older than the Earth itself. Yeah. It kind of kind of breaks your mind in a cool way. It is cool. And yeah. that I yes, my mind is breaking a little bit because I'm like, okay, the you said the crystals were older than the outside than the of outside. the rock. So they must have like existed and then gotten encased, I guess, in like this igneous material. And like that's what we found. That's so cool, but yeah. also, oh, how? I wish they'd, I wish they'd shown <laughs> wow. pictures because they said yeah. they, were, they were beautiful, and I want to see them. <laughs> I'm, I'm basically just imagining it looks like a geode thing, it's but not I don't, far off. But, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe it looks totally different. There's it's, no pictures. It's space rock, so who knows? Who knows? Okay, my next story is dinosaur news. This one's also from sciencealert.com, and the headline is Jaw-Dropping Fossil Find Contains a Dinosaur Sitting on an Entire Clutch of Eggs. Ooh. Yeah. 
That's um, probably really rare. <laughs> yeah, it's actually never been found like this before. Oh, so that that's pretty rare. That, it's pretty rare. An international team of scientists has announced the discovery of an extraordinary fossilized nest in China, preserving at least eight separate dinosaurs from 70 million years ago. The clutch of ancient eggs belongs to a medium-sized adult oviraptor. Did I pronounce that right? Oviraptor? Oviraptor? Yeah. Okay. I think I've heard that before. You know how to pronounce the dinosaur names. I, I just, really... I mean, that's what I guessed. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and we know this because the parent is actually part of the fossil. The skeleton of this ostrich-like theropod is positioned in a crouch over two dozen eggs, at least seven of which were on the brink of hatching, and still contain embryos inside. Whoa. Isn't that so cool? Yeah. This ancient scene is unprecedented and provides the first hard evidence that dinosaurs were brooding parents, laying their eggs and incubating them for quite a long time, which we thought we knew that based on like other evidence we've found, mm-hmm. but this was like a dinosaur <laughs> yeah, sitting like, on oh, the hey, eggs fossilized. Exactly <laughs> so, that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was super cool. Like even I actually, I saw a picture of the fossil and you can't really like just the picture that I saw, like you couldn't tell that this is what that was, but mm-hmm. you know, I believe them. <laughs> That's what it is. So I thought that was super cool. That is. And this, I assume, did not fall from space like billions of years ago. I don't think that is the current theory. I think the theory is that this was an originating on Earth. Yeah. Okay. Um, organisms well, and um, we and haven't we haven't was fully, created on Earth. Yeah. We haven't fully ruled out that dinosaurs might be aliens, but uh, <laughs> we, we you're right. We haven't found evidence. Proving it one way or the other, yeah. I think. We don't know for sure, except that we probably definitely know. <laughs> Based on the fossil record I don't, and like how that all works, but you know. Maybe this is a totally different thing, but I still want to say that I think tardigrades are aliens. Yeah. No, that's probably fair. Because they, <laughs> they could just float like, here. Yeah. They can just survive in a no-air vacuum environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like they could have just floated to the earth, and that's how they're here. Yeah. So... They don't look like anything else on the earth, any other organism at all. And they probably don't even sit on their own eggs. Probably not. Yeah. Do they even have eggs? I have no idea. How do they reproduce? (laughs) I don't even know the answer to this. They probably just like multiply, like when nobody's (laughs) looking, you like turn away and then suddenly there's more tardigrades. They also like don't move unless you're not, unless you're um, not looking at them and then you turn around and it's closer to you. (laughs) Except they're so small. I bet that happens. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't really matter. You just... (laughs) <laughs> oh, nothing continues to be there. <laughs> My next story is technology news. This is from The Hollywood Reporter. Netflix tests cracking down on password sharing. <gasps> Oh, oh, oh no. Oh no, indeed. I actually know a lot of people that do this. So this could, <laughs> yeah, same. I feel like this could affect a lot of people. Um, so some viewers attempting to use somebody else's account are now being stopped by a screen that says, if you don't live with the owner of this account, you need your own account to keep watching. What? That's a, I don't know. That's what it says. Um, in order to continue watching, the viewer is given the option of either verifying their identity with a texted or emailed code to the account's owner, uh, which seems fine if you like know the person. You could just be like, hey, oh, you're about yeah. to get a code. <laughs> Can yeah. you tell me what it is? Um, or opting to verify later, which gives the viewer an unspecified additional amount of time to continue watching and later confirm they are a valid account owner. So 
sure. Oh, okay. Uh, but a, a source familiar with the tests said the extent of the rollout varies count, uh, from country to country, but noted that one reason for the feature is a desire to help protect subscribers from security concerns that can arise from unauthorized use of their account, which, no, it's not. Um <laughs> The move, the move potentially represents the beginning of a, a strategy shift by Netflix, which has historically not attempted to police password sharing. Uh, and they actually have a quote here from uh, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings, which he said in 2016, Password sharing is something you have to learn to live with because there's so much legitimate password sharing, like you sharing with your spouse, with your kids, so there's no bright line, and we're doing fine as is. So that was him in 2016. Um, <laughs> I hear he sounds different now, uh, but uh, but but piracy crackdowns could be the next front in the streaming wars. After some group called the Alliance for Creativity and Entertainment announced a working group to reduce unauthorized access to content, I don't know what's what this that, group. I don't know. <laughs> Who are I these assume people? it in, involves like some of the streaming like services, but, probably. Um, but yeah, it, they said it might prove irresistible for the streaming services to start targeting the more than one-fifth of young adults who, according to a Reuters poll, say they borrow passwords from people who uh, they do not live with. <laughs> one-fifth of like young adults, which is kind of insane. That is a lot. But um, <laughs> there's one more quote in here, and I'm mostly saying it because of the person's name. Um, Warner Media CEO John Stanky. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's that's an unfortunate. It's so name. unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Um, but I'm he said, sorry. He said in 2019, "I don't think we're going to get to a punitive environment. Lawsuits being filed against folks, but I do believe the technology is starting to get better to start paying attention to extensive abuse. When we see 14 locations logged into HBO on a Sunday night with 16 different streams going, we're aware of those things." As growth taps out, I think the industry will come up with a method that's a bit more rigorous. Um, so again, that's John Stanky. Um, he still sounds like that. Um, and, <laughs> but I mean, they obviously they can tell if somebody is like logged into the same account on, in fourteen different places. Yeah. it makes sense, but it's also kind of like I don't know. They're all making so much money. I can't imagine yeah. that this is a huge like cut into their revenue. Um, and they said themselves, like, there's a lot of legitimate reasons to have, like, a shared password and, like, the same account. Well, yeah, and, like, I also think, because those services already limit how many devices can log in to the same account, I thought. Yeah, I'm sure they do. So isn't that already, like, kind of a form of this? I mean, if you're, if you have Netflix and you're not using it this month, you know, mm-hmm. and you want to give somebody like, hey, you can use my login to watch this one show. I'm right. not using it this month. Yeah. How is that like harmful to anyone? Like, yeah, I don't know. You know, that's my opinion on it. Like, I don't, I don't right. think, I mean, yeah, if you're like somehow like, you know, if you're sharing like, your past with a bunch of people you don't know and it's yeah. some public like, if you just, oh, like, everybody uses this. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. That's different. That's I feel not. Like nobody like, I know is doing that. Yeah, They're all same. just like sharing it with like a friend or two or like a family member that yeah. lives somewhere else. So. Or like your, your sibling or that kind of, yeah. that kind of situation. It's that maybe doesn't live in your house, but they're still like your family or, or like a close friend or something like that. It's right. not like that. Yeah. Anybody that I know that does that is like in that situation. So mm-hmm. I hope that they don't like. Yeah. Start doing some crackdowns of like. Oh, I would well, understand if the they started house. cracking down on like hundreds of people logging into the same account. Oh, or something. yeah, like, that that, would make that's sense, but that's just, not yeah. really. 
don't know. We'll see. But I, yeah, I thought that was interesting, and it's also a, a warning to our listeners who are doing this that be, your your time may be coming. Yeah. But we're on your side. But also, we can't do anything. Yeah, but also we're <laughs> we're just we're just reporting on what we just the messengers. read and hear. Yeah, we're just messengers. All right, it's time for breaking news, the part of the show where Anthony and I look up stories that just happened today or were just posted today, and we read them to you on the fly. Check. Ready, set, go. go! Okay, I found this on UPI. The headline is, Website Hiring Minecraft Gardening Consultants for Virtual Landscaping. What? (laughs) I have questions, but I feel like they're about to be answered. I don't know if they are. Okay. (laughs) A British website that reviews garden sheds posted a job listing for an unusual $70 per hour position. Minecraft Gardening Consultant. Also, the, the, the website's called What Shed, which is funny to me for some reason. What Shed? Okay. What Shed <laughs> said the consultants employed by its Minecraft gardening service will lend their video gaming and garden design skills to Minecraft players seeking a little help landscaping in their virtual world of the game. So, like, okay, consultants will be able to lend their expertise for achieving gardening excellence while sticking to the player's mine coin budget, which is the in-game currency. They are seeking candidates with a working knowledge of Minecraft and a creative flair. Like, what is this? While not essential, previous experience in landscape gardening is beneficial. A passion for gardening slash the outdoors must also be demonstrated, the job posting states. It's like they're like hiring people to be... To make gardens in Minescape. Yeah, in, 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 in Minecraft. Minecraft. Yes, they're they're hiring people. Minescape is probably different. To be available to work for other people in to help Minecraft. in Minecraft. Yeah, that is so strange. It's just like I just don't I don't understand a, it at all. Is this a service that people are seeking out? Like, is there a market for Apparently. this that they're like trying to tap into? Are like, there just like all these people posting on? It's like, why can't I find a virtual landscaper? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> Are there a all lot of people just like, oh, are real. <laughs> I want to like hire somebody to like landscape my house in my Minecraft game? Is that a thing? Like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Have you, you've played Minecraft, right? Oh yeah, a while ago, but yeah, I've, I've played it. Like, are there people that are just like living in Minecraft world to the point where they have like a whole second life there and like they want to hire, they want to pay real money for people to like design things in, Maybe. like, I didn't think that was the state of that game. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I really don't know. This was, this was just really funny to me. Anyway, and, and this is just the latest in our series of strange, strange job jobs. Yeah. I mean, $70 an hour though. If you, I mean, if you want to landscape, like this would be a really good job for somebody who's like, who's into Minecraft, like a little bit and like, doesn't want to do physical labor anymore. <laughs> Like yeah. the physical labor of landscaping. I don't know. If there's actually a demand for it, yeah. I think it's seventy dollars an hour, yeah. Um, sign right up. I found this on UPI as well. Uh the headline is Virginia researchers studying whether chili infused beer is world's spiciest. You know how when you want a beer, you want the spiciest beer you I can find. Really don't, but Oh well. Okay. 
this is a pair of alumni and a student from Virginia's University of Mary Washington who are attempting a Guinness World Record for be- brewing the world's spiciest beer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, Ray Parrish has a degree in physics and now owns a brewing company. And they're trying. They're producing Signal One 2.0 beer, which is a weird name. Um, <laughs> a pineapple IPA infused with 500 Carolina Reaper chilies, which seems like a lot. Wow, of chilies! Uh, apparently, the Guinness World Records do not currently have a record for the world's spiciest beer, um, which makes it seem like you don't really need to try very hard at all. But I guess they're <laughs> going. They want to measure the heat of this beer, and uh, they want to originate the record with it. Um, they, All right. brought, they brought in a, a junior biochemistry major, uh, Valerie Abenki, into onto the team. Okay, and they're using the Scoville heat index uh, to calculate the chili heat and see uh, if they indeed have the world's spiciest beer. Do they plan to drink the beer? I mean, I assume that's. I mean, I hope that's part of it. It's not just making it for the record because that seems silly. I mean, that seems like pretty spicy beer, though. Like, yeah. painfully spicy. Some people like spicy. That's true. But uh, <laughs> California Reaper peppers are... And also, oh. not beer, though. I don't want beer. But also, yeah. I would like I've mine. had a spicy cocktail before. Yeah, I have, and that was good, actually. Like a spicy margarita. Mm-hmm. Is that what yours was, too? Uh, I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I had like a strawberry sriracha margarita one time that was like... Excellent. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah. But beer... Beer uh, doesn't seem like the thing I want to be spicy. Yeah. I like beers to be light and refreshing. Yes, which is the opposite of... <laughs> so, the opposite yeah. <laughs> of what this sounds like. Yeah. So, maybe not for us. Yeah, but that's okay. That's okay. Maybe it's for you if you love spicy. Yeah, there you go. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening, everybody. We post episodes every Friday, and as always, the links to this week's stories will be in the episode description. You can subscribe to Knickknack News on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash knickknacknews, on Twitter at at knickknacknews, and on Instagram at knickknacknews. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.